Another episode of the Mr. Barton Maths Podcast with me, Craig Barton. A show where I interview people who interest and inspire me from the world of education. Now, this episode is a little different to the usual ones. For a start, it is one of my conference takeaways, where I sit down at the end of a conference or some training to help collect my thoughts on what I've learnt, both for my own benefit and in the hope that teachers who cannot make the conference might also find it useful. But, whereas in the past I have recorded conference takeaways from MathsConf, BCME and Research Ed, where there are lots of different workshops to reflect on, this time around the training was very specific and, wait for it, it wasn't even about maths. Yes, today I was lucky enough to attend a session entitled Refining Assessment and Reducing Workload with the wonderful Daisy Christodoulou, author of Seven Myths About Education, Making Good Progress, but who is undoubtedly best known as a former guest on this podcast. Indeed, at the end of that interview, which I wholeheartedly recommend you check out if you've not heard it already, Daisy discussed the concept of comparative judgment and her work with no more marking. The concept absolutely fascinated me at the time, and since that interview, Daisy has done a load more work, and hence when I heard she was embarking upon a bit of a Northwest tour, calling in at such glamorous locations as my very own Bolton, Southport and Warrington, she's very, very lucky, I was desperate to get along to a session. Now, this podcast is in three separate parts. First, my former colleague John Selleck and I described the basics of comparative judgment and what we did in today's session. Now, just a word of warning for all my maths teachers listening here. John is what can only be described as an English teacher. I know, I know. I figured I needed to have at least one token non-maths friend, and John is it. But his presence was extremely useful, as much of the session was focused on a writing task where I was completely out of my depth. But that is one of the myths of comparative judgment that I hope to bust during this podcast. Whilst it's undoubtedly a tool that lends itself extremely well to long-form writing tasks, I believe it has an interesting and exciting role to play in the world of mathematics, which is something I discussed throughout the episode, but in particular at the end. Then in the middle we hear from Daisy herself, as I, was lo- as I was lucky enough to grab her to ask her three questions that have been playing on my mind throughout the session. Finally, John and I return to share our key takeaways from the session at the end. How will what we have seen today actually affect our practice in the classroom? Now, a few quick disclaimers before we crack on. Firstly, John and I are anything but experts in comparative judgment, and we are more than a bit ropey when it comes to trying to explain many things really, but in particular, how ranks get turned into grades and levels. Fortunately, Daisy and her colleagues at No More Marking do a far, far better job than us, and I've linked to a great blog post in the show notes, so please give that a read, and probably ignore most of what me and John say on the matter. Secondly, the bulk of the episode was recorded outside a coffee shop in Birkdale, just on the outskirts of Southport. Now, this sounded like a good idea at the time. The sun was shining, the shirt sleeves were rolled up, John and I had visions of ourselves being very much like James Richardson from Football Italia on the 90s, sipping a latte on a piazza in Florence. 
But the trade-off is that trade-off is that you do get a fair bit of background noise. On the positive side, if our conversations bore you, then the table next to us seem to be having a great time, so just tune into that. Finally, when you hear from Daisy in the middle of the interview, the background noise reaches a new level. But as I've started saying, treat this as one of Bjork's desirable difficulties and listen extra hard to learn even more. Anyway, I really hope you enjoy this one and find it useful. As I say, I am increasingly swayed by the power of comparative judgments, even for us maths teachers. But this is definitely an episode to share with your non-maths colleagues who want to know more. As John and I discuss in the episode, you can set up an internal use of comparative judgment completely for free on the No Marking website, and I would highly recommend you do so. And John reflects on a specific way he's going to use that free service at the end of this episode. So without further ado, here are John and I talking all things comparative judgment. Enjoy this one, and as ever, I will see you on the other side. I'd been warned in advance that the course wasn't math specific and I get a bit nervous whenever numbers aren't involved. So I thought, who can I bring along to assist me with this? So I dug deep into my phone book and I dug out the number of Mr. Jonathan Selleck, a former colleague of mine, an English teacher, where we used to talk together for about five or six years at Range High School in Formby. So it gives me great pleasure to welcome onto this Conference Takeaway podcast, Mr. Jonathan Selleck. Hello, John. Hi, Craig. This is great. Thank you. You're very welcome. Just to describe the scene here, we, I mean, we are living the life here. We're sat essentially in the sunshine in Birkdale Village. I, I'm on a latte. John's on a cappuccino. John should be back at school, but he's on free periods, and we're just loving life, aren't we, John? We, we certainly are. Shall I? You want me to do a little bit of a spoon on a on a cup? Just to... perfect. You've got sound effects. You've got buses going past. It is. It's heaven. This. So right. Let's talk about the course. So. Comparative judgment, for those of you who haven't, haven't listened to, to Daisy's interview or don't know anything about it, my understanding is relatively limited, but um, Daisy defined it as a different way of assessing open tasks. And her point was that as humans, we are better at making comparative judgments than, than absolute judgments. Now, John, you, you have kind of a bit of an analogy or you, you've kind of spotted that this is true in, in other parts of our lives. Do you want to tell us about that? Yeah, Daisy addressed this herself quite early on um, but I, it just struck me sort of on the way to the conference this morning how it's such a natural thing to actually make comparative judgments it's so much more natural than making absolute ones you know you go to the shop to buy your groceries you're constantly comparing to what you've had before or what's next to it on the shelf and uh, I just thought we're doing that all the time aren't we in our, in our lives no matter what I did make a, a little note of the the other analogies that, that Daisy Daisy made that were that were similar somewhere. Do you remember what they were? <laughs> no, no. <laughs> There's the colours. The colour one, of course, is the is the big setup, isn't it? Yeah, colours was great. So our, our kind of opening activity was we were shown. It was kind of a scales it one to eight with eight yep. different shades of blue with one being the lightest, eight being the darkest. And then we were shown these uh, colours in isolation. You had to remember what number it corresponded to. So if you were shown a light one, you knew it was one of the lower numbers, but you didn't necessarily know whether it was two or three or four. And we had to shout out which um, which which number we thought it corresponded to. We did this eight times. And as a group, I think we got five out of eight or something. Yeah, yeah. Which uh, Daisy said the average was three out of eight. But there was big disagreement, wasn't there? 
Scotland, though. Oh, yeah, was, every time. I didn't have a clue. I mean, you, you're colourblind, aren't you? So you, you were straight. You <laughs> were the best to start. You were disadvantaged <laughs> early on. Um, but, yeah, and uh, Daisy's point there was that making those absolute judgments was, was very difficult. But then we were... Well, what happened next, John, with the, with the colours? Yeah, um, so what happened next was we, we actually saw our screen that was split into three, didn't we? Um, the, the top box had the colour. Um, next to another one and we just had to say whether or not uh, the right hand uh, box was the darker one or the left hand box was the darker one and we went through maybe 15 or 16 of them yeah I think so Uh, and as we were shouting out right or left right or left each time uh, we were seeing some interesting things going on with the numbers and the the, the, the range 0 to 8 was sorting itself out on the screen so we could see uh, if you like a sort of behind the scenes of what was going on uh, with the software and it was, it was fascinating, and I, I want to dig into the maths behind this at some point. There was some kind of decision maths algorithm going on here, some kind of sorting algorithm, because it took about maybe 15 comparisons, something like that, but the list was completely sorted into order. There was no disagreement whatsoever between people. And the point from that exercise, it was just kind of to, to hook people in, was to say that it's far easier to make these comparisons between two things than it is to give an absolute grading or number on something. And obviously, that's going to have big implications when we look at assessments and pieces of work and, and so on. So that fo- what followed from that was when I started getting out my depth here because it was, it was some kind of English task. Now, John, ju- just tell us through what we, talk us through what we had to do here. Yeah, so it was a typical sort of GCSE uh, functional or transactional uh, English exam task uh, that w- would be marked typically out of, out of 40. And uh, the task itself that we were looking at, we are looking at responses, pupils' responses to the task of, of writing a letter to your local councillor uh, to discuss the, the merits of a music festival. Uh, and at, at that point, we were, we were given, each of us, uh, on our screen, uh, our screens generated a, a, a comparison, a like-for-like, between two, uh, two pupils' responses. Sort of went from there, really, didn't it? Yeah, so we had a, a, a kind of piece of work on the left, piece of work on the right, and essentially we just had to say left or right which one was best. Now, yeah. I didn't have a bloody clue what I was looking for, so my, my, my criteria was... Firstly, did the, the handwriting look neat? If so, that was a big tick in my book. And secondly, if it contained a word that I didn't understand, it was probably <laughs> it was probably a good piece of work as well. But what, what were you looking for as, as an English teacher, John? Because I'm right in saying that, and for maths listeners, if you're thinking, what the flipping heck's going on with this podcast? When are the numbers coming in? Just relax. I mean, I'm going to definitely come in with that later on. But I was fascinated from this from, from an English perspective because I'm assuming whenever you're marking a piece of work in isolation, You've what got some criteria, yeah. some kind of mark scheme or something like that. What are you looking for when you look at a single piece of work, and how did that experience differ when you have these pieces side by side? Yeah, so you have. I suppose it becomes a. It's always in danger of becoming a tick box exercise. Um, you have a rubric, you have the mark scheme, and you're going down the bullet points, and you're looking to see if they've done certain things, um, and and if they have, they're going they're going to get credit for it. But what that from my point of view what that never actually does is a, is allow sufficient credit to students who are able to master whatever the task is and, and, and write with a degree of flair it's really easy to spot the use of a rhetorical question or the use of alliteration it's not as easy to, to you know actually put a label on someone who, who, who's obviously writing with uh, the, the required flair to get the higher grade. So that was interesting from my perspective. And did you find, like, just pure time-wise, like, how, how long to... So th- these were 
Daisy said that the responses had been written within 40 minutes or something like that. And what, what was the question, by the way? What was right, it? so it was, it was write a response. Uh, or, sorry. Um, the, the idea of a music festival has been has touted, been put forward uh, in, in your local village or your local town. Write a letter giving your opinion about this to your local councillor. And it was a GCSE task. I think Daisy mm-hmm. said they had 40 minutes to answer it. So yeah. they, they, some, some kids had done a couple of pages, some kids one page. Um, to mark an individual one of those, to assign a grade, what are we talking there, John, if you take a class set of those? Oh, so? Look, um, you know, you, I mean, I'm going to... A ballpark figure, and I'd be happy if I'm... If I'm, I'm happy if I'm doing that in 10 minutes. You know, if, particularly, I might, I might try and shave that down to seven or eight for one particular piece of work so over obviously a class of 30 you know you're talking talking a good while <laughs> Matt, Mr Matt <laughs> um, I don't know if it's the same with, with, with you um, whenever I, I guess the, the kind of the similarity I could see here is whenever I'm marking kind of multi-mark questions whenever it's a five or six mark question in maths where you've got to follow through the working out and have a look down it and they're a flipping nightmare to mark is it the same with you, John, that when you're marking those in isolation, for a start, um, once I've marked 10 or 15, yeah. I start almost wanting to go back to the start and change things because yeah. I've not got the full picture of it when I, when I start. Mm-hmm. And also, inevitably, I spend less time on the ones towards the end just because I'm knackered and I can't be arsed by that stage than I yeah. do at the start. Is, is, would that be something you'd find? Uh, very much so. And, and you know, you... You, you attempt at some level to do a comparison, don't you? By the time you get to paper number twenty-three of thirty, but that comparison is a is a is a tough one to make when you've seen perhaps twenty-two papers in the interim. So yeah, I would agree with that entirely. That's certainly an area where English and maths clearly, you know, there's an, an overlap there to begin with. Nice. So <laughs> so you've got your what like couple of hours marking them in isolation, but now we've got this comparative judgment so where we're looking at them side by side so I guess the first thing to say is um, how long you as, a, as an English expert what, how long were you spending weighing up the left option versus the right option and, and also I'm interested what, what were you looking for Daisy said didn't she beforehand she, she said that the average uh, is 20 seconds I found that surprising uh, yeah like, and when she threw that out there I, I it, I got a shock and I thought, oh, I'm, not, I'm not sure I'm, I'm up to this. That's not even 20 seconds to read one, right? That's 20 seconds to read both and make a judgment which is best. Yeah. And um, what I appreciated was that there was no timer on the screen as you were making the judgment. Yes. When you did then press your selection, right or left, it told you how that's long right. you'd just spent on the, on the previous one. And I surprised myself. It wasn't quite 20, but I must have been, must have been averaging 25 seconds. Really? Yeah. Uh, and that's looking across both. And it, I, I look. I mean, I absolutely loved it. I just to be able to scan, yes, and to go backwards and forwards from left to right on that screen. Um, you know, I wasn't necessarily following all. You know, if you want to follow the structure of someone's argument, you, you know, you, you have to, to to follow the narrative. But there were there were times when I nip across to see if the the person on the right hand side had done something better or similar to what I'd just read. But I was getting a sense really quite quickly. See, this fascinates me. So regular listeners will know one of the big um, 
kind of recurring themes on this podcast is the difference between novice learners and expert learners and I, I bang on about this in my book but I was very much a, a novice at this and I, it, re, it was a real useful but quite frustrating exercise for me to be in the shoes of a novice learner because I don't have your expertise when it comes to English so I could only cling on to as I say how complex the words were what, what their handwriting looked like whereas can, can you even articulate what you were looking for could, did you just have a sense of which was a better piece of writing yes and is it something um, you could train me upon or, or not is it just something that's built up with experience do you think it's certainly been built up with experience I um, she actually put Daisy put on the screen and she said trust, trust your gut instinct Did she yes, was, that was, yes that was a bullet yes, point wasn't yes. it before we trust you and because my first as as she set the task I thought well okay you, you're asking me to say which one's better but which one's better in terms of spag spell and punctuation and grammar, uh, grammar. which one's better in terms of um, uh, its structure which one follows no none of that just what's your, your, your gut instinct which one is the better piece and it's it's interesting because this goes back and a little uh, I should have mentioned this early on but we're going to hear from Daisy in the, in the middle of this and one of the questions just a little teaser to, to, to keep listening one of the questions I put to Daisy was one of my concerns I had and I don't know if this, this struck you John but I would imagine as a, from an English teacher's perspective you're quite interested sometimes in specifics so if you want to work on structure or if you want to work on spelling, punctuation and grammar you almost I guess you want to ignore other stuff sometimes and hone in on a particular thing so you can give specific feedback to it so maybe you're working on the use of an apostrophe or something like that mm -hmm. whereas this is a more holistic thing right this is more just kind of quality of writing would, would that be fair? Yeah very much so and I, I find the idea of that quite freeing really I mean I would say that I know after teaching 11-12 years I, I feel confident that I know how to teach the other way the way that we're, we're looking at moving away from here. Um, but the idea of not having to say, well, you know, this this student hasn't used rhetorical questions very effectively, so I need to do a lesson on rhetorical questions. Well, okay, but that can be quite clunky, and by the time they actually come around to doing the assessment, you know, is the rhetorical, is the rhetorical question gone out the window? See what, <laughs> See what you've there? done there, yeah. <laughs> That, that was almost over my head, but I'm just about <laughs> just about on it. But does that, and this is probably something we should discuss at the end, but would, would that concern you, the fact that you're not honing in on a specific kind of skill or area, or or is that not a worry? Is, is the whole more important than, than working on individual parts? I think it was explained really very eloquently by Daisy, um, was one of the questions wasn't it at the, at the end of the session when she said that actually it works love it's a lovely blend with whole class feedback and at that point she pointed out how you could um, potentially take I don't know something quite straightforward the example she gave was actually a tense agreement so where, where a student has written two consecutive sentences one in past tense and one in present you could take that you could put that into your whole class feedback and uh, you could ask the class, okay, um, please identify what the problem is, please solve the problem for me, and then please now look at your work and see if you've done anything similar. So the, as a tool for, for picking out specifics, I, I don't see a problem. In fact, if anything, that, that's, that's really quite reassuring. Yes. 
got it. Okay, so let's go back to the session here. We've done so we, we've done these judgments. I'm averaging about seventy seconds per thing, and I, honestly, I'm I'm struggling a little bit. What happens next, John? What, what happens to, to those results? And we should say, by the way, we've got about, what, maybe 20 teachers doing this, and we did it for probably 15 minutes, something along those lines? 15 minutes, and we're all seeing the same... Uh, uh, around the room, we're all seeing the same yeah, 15 fi- fi- scripts. 15 scripts, but it was random which was paired with, with which and so on. Yeah, and over the, over the course, you're seeing the same script. Have we already said this? You're seeing no. the same script couple of more times, than once, But it would be paired with a different one and so on. And, right. and behind the scenes, what's being generated is a, is a rank order, very similar to how the colours were ranked yes. for us. So we, we saw that happening on the screen in front of our eyes. So we, we trust the system is... is going through that process and then the result is that we can look at the board and we can see okay according to the collective this is the rank order now this is where it got interesting for me because we were kind of we were sat next to each other and we're kind of nudging each other at this point because there was definitely an elephant in the room here wasn't there yeah yeah so we've got the rank order so we've got these 15 scripts and we can see which has been considered the best, highest quality script. And Daisy made the point that she's done this in lots of different schools. And it always comes out this same script as, as being the best. God knows if I put it as the best. I've no idea. And likewise, the one that was ranked 15th, that one seems to be the one that always comes out on the bottom. So we've got this rank order. Um, and Daisy talked about the reliability of that order and so on. And we'll, we'll dig into that um, a little bit uh, later on. But the thing me and John were thinking was that's all well and good, but is comparative judgment just about putting things in order? Because if that's all there is to it, it's got relatively limited use because especially if we want to start assigning grades and levels or or know how far somebody is off a particular grade and so on. It's quite limiting if all we can do is put things in rank order. But fortunately, Daisy addressed that head on and John was frantically scribbling notes down as she explained how it works. So do you want to just take us through that, John, how it's not just a ranked order? And I think the um, the, the phrase Daisy used was a scaled score. Yeah, and that really just, that was, that was a real eye-opener. I was really impressed by that because... Obviously, a rank order, if there was 15 scripts, would only give us a 1, 2, 3, 4, 5, d- uh, d- down to 15. It would tell us that one, the second placed, you know, was very good. It was better than the other 13, but not as good as the top one. Yes. Great. But actually, what it doesn't do is tell us how much better it was than the other uh 13 exactly uh, or, or how much worse it was to the, to the top and actually the scripts we looked at I think number one was scoring at, coming in at 40 yeah she, she you... assigned a score of 40 to it that's right uh, whereas uh, the second place was actually 23.8 and then you had a cluster of, of four or five in the 20s that's right and these were this was the scaled score so it wasn't just the case that the 15 the scores have been assigned arbitrarily so that it was um everyone had the same gap between them it wasn't just we'll take 40 divided by 15 and and scale them like that there was a big jump between one and two a small as you say then i think it was a cluster like two three four and five are clustered together then another jump down to six and so on so where were these scaled scores coming from john I mean, she talked us through it, didn't it? Didn't it? And it was, it was. I mean, the math, the maths was going on. And I think, and Daisy can uh, can can tweet in if this is wrong, but it was it was based on, I believe, the number of times um, a script had been ranked higher than another script, and how many comparisons had happened, 
and the reliability of those comparisons. But there was a really clever algorithm that wasn't just putting things in order, but almost saying how much, how, how much better is the wrong word, but how significant the difference between the two yeah, scripts was. Yeah, so the number one, the script number one, everybody in the room agrees. Yes, that's at, it. at no stage did anybody question that number one was the best. And yeah, every it time essentially that, that beat everybody text else. Yes. had appeared on someone's screen, they, everyone in the room had said it was the better of yes. the two. So therefore it scored a, the, the round figure of 40.0. That's right. Whereas the second script... Perhaps it had beaten most things, but mm-hmm. it hadn't beaten everything, so it was it was lowered down. And also, perhaps if it had only have been beaten by script one, then it would have had a higher score than 28 point whatever, but the yeah. algorithm had probably realised that actually some people had ranked script three higher than it or script four higher than it. So that's why there was a big gap between script one and script two. Was that your understanding of it? Yeah, but no, very much so, yeah. Exactly that. Now, and again, that was all well and good, so now we have an actual score, but the next question, I guess, from that is, what does that actually mean? I mean, now now we've got something that we can use internally, we've got essentially a score, and if we've got different classes using it, um, then we can assign them a score, but then how how on earth do those scores translate to levels and grades and so on? And Daisy talked about that, didn't she? Yeah, and this is where the national picture was so important, wasn't it, in terms of, um, you know, it might be very difficult if the only... The only scripts that you're looking at are 15 to 20 of your classes. Um, however, if you're able to put your your data alongside thousands of other students across the country, what you're going to get is a lot more accurate. That's absolutely right. So this tool, and we'll talk a bit more about this a little later on, it's got a use internally, but the more kids that you can get doing it, if you can do it across a year group, or you can do it across different schools, or ideally nationally, that's when you can start making some really kind of meaningful comparisons and getting some really kind of meaningful data out of it. And we'll talk a little bit later on about how you can get involved in this. But I should say at this point, it's completely free to use just for yourself, right? With your class, there's, there's nothing stopping you as an English teacher or me as a maths teacher, um, essentially feeding in a year group's worth of scripts or a yep. class class's worth of answers to a particular question and then getting different teachers to log in and rank these and so on and getting these results out. Was that your understanding as well? Yeah, then? very much so. And she actually gave a couple of examples of teachers doing that. With, you know, that, that became the lesson. That became the lesson in terms of getting them into a computer suite after the, the lesson after they'd actually written the, the, the text. You've, you've done your PDFs, you've got them on, on the screen and the, the pupils themselves are doing what we did Absolutely. in today's session, which is just could be incredibly useful and then he said I think she said that the teacher I forget what he taught it was A level mm. psychology maybe psychology, or something like that yeah, yeah. he then printed out the scripts that the students at a class as a class had voted to be the number one the best script each week and they're, anon- they're anonymised so anonymous, there's no issue yeah. there and he gave detailed feedback on that so every week kids were getting essentially a model script that one of them had written that they'd all agreed was the best and he could have uh, at his input so really nice ways to use this um, as individual teachers and um, the thing i just want to touch on now john is um this is all well and good but but does it work like it's a really fancy system it was really nice to use it was quite an enjoyable experience but Daisy, and if anyone's listened to making, uh, read Making Good Progress or listened to my interview uh, with her on this podcast, will know that Daisy's obsessed with the reliability, the efficiency, and the validity of, of tests and assessments. And it seemed this comparative judgment seemed to score pretty highly on each of those. So let's talk about reliability first, John. Um, the first thing to say is that um, 
the good scripts, as I mentioned before, came out as the best scripts every time this was done, and the mm-hmm. worst script came out as the as the worst script every time this was done, which was promising. But then Daisy mentioned something about, and I found this fascinating: the um, the kind of margin of error when oh, yeah, when yeah. things are marked in isolation and with the exam boards. Can you just talk us through that, John? Because this blew my mind, this. Yeah, so she asked us to uh, comment on what we what we might expect to be an acceptable um, margin. Uh, kind of margin the example, for error, is that? Ma- margin for error, sorry. So she, the example being, that, you know, if it, if it was out of 40, um, if you knew that something had been marked, at, should be marked at 20 out of 40, if you had that as an exemplar, what margin of error would you accept from teachers in terms of the marking of that particular piece? Exactly. And I'm thinking, as a mathematician, I'm thinking we go mental if the one or two marks either. But like two marks, definitely. Like two marks either side, I'd be going mental at this. I, I wouldn't be happy at all. But then she dropped the bombshell for me that when the exam boards do it, right? This mm-hmm. is exam markers do it. What's their margin of error, John? Yeah, plus or minus five. So you've got kids who should be marked 20 out of 40 who could get up to 25 out of 40 or down to 15 out of 40. That, that's right. I, I, it was quite shocking. I, I understand that she then explained that and, and, and I understand the validity of it. But um, I'd initially, my guess had been, well, I was thinking in terms of our bands, you know, we, we, typically a band might go, go across maybe six marks, maybe seven at a push. So I was thinking, well, okay, three either way. So when she then said, actually, nationwide, Ofqual did this uh, ex- experiment and it was five either way. Yeah, that was um, yeah, interesting, to say the least. It, re- it really was. And she made the point that, the, obviously, that's exam boards with all the resources, the moderation and so on. So that when things are actually done in school by teachers, it's going to be even potentially even worse than that, right? So we're getting potentially six or seven either side, eight or nine either side. It, it absolutely shocked me, whereas comparative judgment, when we did this and we just did it for 15 minutes, we had some novices in the room like myself, we had some experts in the room like you, John, but we only did it for 15 minutes the first time we'd done it, and we had a margin of error of about plus or minus two, was that right? Yeah, yeah, 0.87 it was coming in at. That's right, that's right, which was, um, yeah, which, which was fascinating for me. So... Reliability, it seemed to be, it seemed to be scoring pretty high on that. You had no question marks over its reliability, did you not, John? Were you happy enough with that? Yeah, I really was because I could, I knew how um, empowering just the singular, uh, you know, going through the fifteen scripts myself had been. So to know that that had been multiplied by how many were in the room, Craig? What are you saying? 20, I'm, 20? I'm claiming twenty, something yeah, like that. Yeah, knowing that had been multiplied by twenty, uh, you know fellow professionals no issue with that at all and we should say at this point I mean you say fellow professionals but (laughs) as I say I I was classed as one of those Um, Daisy made the point I think this is really important to say at this stage I'm forgetting what oh yeah that was an in-fit measurement so whenever whenever these results came through you you had the ranking of all the the papers but you also had what Daisy described as an in-fit score and this was essentially a measure of disagreement so if you had a paper uh, with a re- or an answer or a script with a really low in fit score, that suggests that there was a consensus around where that fit into the rankings. But if you had an in fit score, I think at one point three was the um, acceptable. The, yeah. yeah. Anything above one point three suggested that actually this is quite a divisive answer, and that may um, and that was kind of used as a an alarm bell to say actually you need to take a little look at this. So maybe it was a, a script where some people absolutely loved it but other people absolutely hated it or didn't think it was very good. And this in-fit score was kind of used 
in terms of answers to show whether there was an outlier. But what also, and I found that interesting, but what also interested me, and then I'll pass it over to you for comment, John, was that could also be used for teachers who were giving judgments. So you, you could have an actual in-fit score yourself as one of the judges. Luckily, Daisy didn't project this up onto the board because I don't know how high this scale for in-fit goes, but I could have been off, off the charts. And if you have a teacher who is wildly out of consensus with everybody else, then that gets flagged up in their in-fit score, and you can either choose to remove that judge from that yeah. from from the data or dig into it a bit uh, further if, if it needs further investigation did did I read that right yeah and as you say Daisy was kind enough not to reveal who the, who, who, who that might have been in, in the room uh, in fact nobody nobody scored 1.3 did they and I, I'm, I'm being I'm being unkind yes uh, everybody was below the 1.3 uh, acceptable figure so uh, yeah that was uh, that was good and uh, yeah I guess that would be a big potential flaw in this if you didn't have that measure of how of whether things fit in or not it's your classic thing with averages like if if everybody ranks a paper as being the fifth best out of ten or half the people think it's the best and half the people think it's the worst and when you average them out they both come out to be the same you'd want to know the difference right you'd, you'd want some measure that it's it's dividing opinion you would I think it's only fair at this point to address um you know the, the the issue maybe of, of some teachers perhaps having a. I, I know that I wouldn't. I'd be a little bit wary of having my own personal judgments flagged up in front of the um, front of the rest of the faculty at a faculty yes, meeting, for yes. instance. There's no issue there, is there? Though because that that, as Daisy proved, that information can remain. Anonymous. Nobody has to know who, who the outlier was. Absolutely. And I should say as well, what's interesting, and we're going to hear from Daisy very soon, but Daisy made the point that actually sometimes the outlier might be right. Like if you're the, if you're the outlier, if you're the experienced teacher, and you're doing this with a group of PGC students, or students in fact actually you do want to take into account your your particular view so it may not be the case of automatically dismissing people whose infit score is high it may just be just like with a script it may just prompt further investigation and it, i think it's just a, a useful piece of data to have if, if that makes sense definitely and um, the second thing was so efficiency was the other thing um, and you've you've kind of we've covered this but you've made the point there john that this would save you time right and would you say it's also, we, we looked at how many comparisons do you reckon you made in 15 minutes? Were well, you doing oh, about 20, yeah. probably uh, about 30, right? If you're doing about 25 seconds, I would something say so, like yeah. that. Um, and a more pleasurable experience, would you, oh, would you say? Very, very much so. Such a you know, instead of having to return time and time again to the same rubric, the same mark scheme, which, you know, I, I, I have to admit, I do, I have to do that. You know, I'm not, perhaps others don't, but I always have to oh, yeah. actually ret- return to it. And, and um, yeah, it was it was great it was really enjoyable it was great it was it was such a good way of getting really quick experience of a vast range of students work yes so we've got a big tick on the efficiency and the final thing we'll say is just it's just validity here so i found this fascinating uh, daisy made the point that if the kind of traditional way of doing this with moderation and again it's been a while since I, when i first started teaching we did maths coursework so i was heavily involved in the moderation uh, procedure but it's been a while but you'll know more than me john she made the point here that for coursework or those kind of extended writing tasks 95% of them will only be seen by the individual class teacher and only a best case 5% of them will be seen by someone else whether it's a a moderator an external invigilator or so on whereas with comparative judgment 
Um, scripts will be seen by at least 20 people or seen at least 20 times. That that must have been a big one for you, right? Oh, massive, you know. Um, so this equates to 20 minutes each to judge one group's script. So if I've got a class of perhaps typically 25 students, it's going to take me 20 minutes to judge the whole classes. Now, okay, that might sound a little bit scary. That's, I should add, not just me making that judgment. Yes. It's going to take us as a faculty 20 minutes to work through that particular class. But still. I mean, and I, the point she made that I thought was interesting as well is, so say you sit down on a Sunday, uh, probably Sunday night in your case, John, last, last minute at night to, 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 do, to, to do your marking. Say it takes you three hours. That's not the end of the story, right? Because then you've then got to have the moderation after that within your English meetings and so on. Uh, Daisy's point here was that this builds moderation into it at the same time, right? Because you're essentially moderating because you're seeing other pieces of work as you go through. Yeah, uh, silently and anonymously. Yeah, which, which is, is just nice brilliant. Touch. Yeah, yeah. I mean, we're selling. We're sounding like we're, we're salesmen for no more marketing, but I, I was pretty much sold on it. Um, the the other thing, just on the validity thing, um, because the, we need to touch upon this, John. How these, how this gets translated into actual marks, and I think you've got your head around this with the national picture. But the point I'll I'll just make here on the validity is whenever that these scaled scores were translated into grades or levels or marks or whatever, and they were compared with marks that were given by awarding bodies and, and their examiners marking things, there was a 0.85 correlation. So those of you into your uh, correlation coefficient, one is a perfect correlation, 0.85 is a very, very strong correlation. So it does seem to be a very valid um, kind of result that comes out of this. Could you, John, did you get your head around how these scaled scores um, are actually converted yeah. using the national picture? So might have helped me out with some of the mathematical terms here, Greg, <laughs> we, 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 we got we, we got to we, we, we got a graph didn't we with uh, what, what had happened over a, a, a national um, sample uh, with, within um, comparative marking and this might oh, be like a GCSE paper sorry the, or with, like for that. the GCSE paper alongside the actual grades that had been given got for it. the task by the examiners got it and those were then lined up on the same on the same graph yeah I think a box plot was involved or something <laughs> but you're absolutely right so the the national picture from the exams was then presented on the same box plot same axes as the comparative judgment and then what happened then and then it was it was a case of looking horizontally across wasn't it to see where the cutoff points were for each grade i think so so it was i right in saying so if for example seven, the top seven percent nationally had been given a level nine or a grade nine you would then just was it as simple as then you took the seven percent top seven percent from the ranking order and gave them the grade nine was that was that your understanding i, I want to say yeah that that was my understanding <laughs> that was my understanding we could be wrong i mean we, we, we could be wrong but the point was and i'm um and i'm sure this is explained in more detail on the no more marking blog we'll put a link to that in the show notes there did seem to have been a great deal of thought put into how you could actually convert these rankings first to scaled marks and then to actual marks and levels compared them nationally was was that your impression? oh yeah that had been and the samples seemed to stack up didn't they in terms of in, in, in favor of that 
Exactly, exactly. Well, at this stage, I guess it's time to introduce uh, Daisy to the podcast. Now, I should say that Daisy was in a real rush and she was very, very kind to, uh, to, to talk to me for a few minutes at the end. She was heading off to, to Sunny Warrington uh, after her session. And there's all kinds of background noise going on. At some point, somebody asks, tells her a taxi's here. At some point, a cleaner comes and moves our podcast table to, to take it away. So hopefully you can, you can make out me and Daisy. And I just managed to ask Daisy three questions that had really been on my mind. So I'll hand over now to me and Daisy, and then me and John will be back just to wrap up with some takeaways at the end. I'm very lucky to be joined by Daisy, who's on a whistle-stop tour of the Northwest, doing all the big sites. So you've done Bolton yesterday, yep. Southport today. Where are you off to this afternoon? Uh, uh, Colchester School, which is uh, Warrington. near Warrington. Yeah. Nice, yeah, all yeah. the biggies. Yeah, yeah. So a couple of quick questions for you, Daisy. Um, firstly, I wanted to know, is there a correlation between the time taken mm-hmm. and the accuracy of comparison? And the reason I ask yeah. that is I can imagine how mm. too quick could yeah. lead to less yeah. accuracy, but can you spend too long on something? Yeah. So that is a great question, and we've actually got a beautiful graph on our website, oh, no, which all you math teachers are going to love. <laughs> and it's it's quite hard to describe, as ever with graphs, that's the point of them. Yes. <laughs> you need to go and look at it, but it's um, it's got this lovely sort of hot spot, right. and we put a hot spot, which is where, I think, oh, what do we plot? I think we plot, we plot Infit versus time taken. Yes. And there's basically a sweet spot, I think, where most people hit, which is really decent infit and, you know, quite speedy as well. It does vary for different year groups. Sure. So clearly, like, you can judge year one yeah. quicker than you can judge year 10. You judge uh, year one quicker than you judge a year six portfolio with three pieces in. So the time taken to judge does vary depending on the length of the scripts, the complexity of it. But I would recommend having a look at those hotspots on our on our website. Um, I can't remember it off the top of my head, but as I say, there's a sweet spot where people are hitting infit of about 0.7, 0.8. They're judging in 20 seconds, and, and that's, that's that's kind of ideal. Almost kind of in the flow or something, you could imagine. I, I definitely think that. So certainly from the judging I've done, I feel like there's also, for me, this is more intuitive, we haven't got data on this, but I feel there's a sweet spot of the amount of judging. Yes. So I, t- I, t- I don't, you don't want to do just five or ten. Yes. You want to get into the rhythm of it and, and get your mind. Mo- mind in the right place I don't think you really want to do too many either because like anything you sort of get tired so I've personally felt sort of about 60 70 is, is quite a nice number to do in one go um, and that's not too much time either you, you can do more you can do more I know people do more um, but yeah you know maybe 75 in one go and then you're really in the rhythm of it and I think yeah when you get into that rhythm of it you can make quite quick judgments that are, are still pretty accurate because your, your mind is thinking about the, the right thing um, so I certainly found, yeah. as, a, as a non-English yeah. person, very much out of my depth in this session, but I enjoyed it nonetheless. Um, you made the point that it's better to get more judgments, yeah. spread them out between people than have loads of people, than having a few people doing a lot. Is there a trade-off there? Is it better to have a few experts doing a lot of judgments, or is it better to then start spreading it out between judges, but the expertise dips, if that makes sense? Yeah, and that's, again, a, a great question. Um, so... I would say you want to spread it out and distribute it, but your point about expertise does really matter because what you don't want to do, there is a risk, and this is why I think it is tricky with peer assessment. You've got to think very carefully for using it for peer assessment. And actually, the guy who's written very well on this is Ben Rogers. He's written a nice thing on this. So potentially your risk is, say you distribute your judging such that you've got 20 
inexperienced people who maybe judgments you're not that sure about yes. and you've got one expert yes. the risk then is that the infit of the expert could look terrible and the infit yes. of all the inexperienced people yes. will look wonderful yep. and that's not because they're alright it's because infit is not really it's not actually a measure of necessarily of, of, of accuracy it's yes. a measure of agreement with the group so if the group is wrong uh, whatever wrong might be you get into deep philosophical issues yes. here but if, if the group is wrong then someone with a high infit actually could be you know could be right uh, so you do have to, when you're spreading your judging, you've got to be wary. Yes. And that's why I say that the classic issue you've got to be wary of is, is, is pure kind of peer and self-assessment. If you've got 30 year sevens judging and yourself, there is a potential risk there. Um, and as I say, I think Ben, ben, ben White, uh, his Twitter handle is Walden Ken, he's done a lovely blog post for us on how he mitigates some of those things. And Ben Rogers has also talked about some of the issues he's found with less experienced science teachers uh, and that. So I think you've definitely got to watch out for that. Um, I think, you know, when we've got what we've got at primary is we have a lot of experienced teachers judging. Uh, and because we run in these big national projects, we've got people from across the country. So I think the good thing about distributing it, if you're distributing it amongst people with, with expertise and with experience, the good thing about that is um, you're getting lots of very different perspectives, yes. which is good. Um, so I, I think you do want to distribute it, but you want to make sure you're not bringing in too many, too many, too many. You don't want to make sure you're not bringing in too many uh, people who might not have that expertise. Got it. Hiya, sorry. Yeah, yeah, it's me. Yeah, so there's someone here. Fantastic. That reception. Yeah. Brilliant. Fantastic. Can I'm coming down right now. Can I ask the last question? Yeah, yeah, last, yeah question. last question. Yeah. Final question, Dave. Um, and I hope this makes yeah. sense. I got the feeling that when we were judging the English scripts, yeah. we were getting an overall sense of the quality of writing. Yeah. Now, as a non-English yeah, 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 teacher, yeah, yeah. that was my take. Is there a conflict here between kind of deliberate practice where we want to hone in on something specific? Because yeah. the yeah. thing I was, the sense I was getting is that we're getting an overall sense, yeah. but then how do we isolate specific yeah. things? I, I, totally, that make I totally agree with that, and that's the message of my, my second book, Making Good Progress. Um, and that's why I'd say with comparative judgment, don't overuse it. Right. So I do get some people come to me and say, can we do this six times a year? And look, there's nothing to stop you if we do it six <laughs> times a year. Um, but I would say, you know, actually two, two, three times max a year. Like it's, it's, giving, it's giving you something different. It's yeah, and for me, the feedback it gives you, it does give you feedback, but it gives you feedback of a different type from what I would say is the day-to-day lesson-to-lesson information you're getting from the kids. It gives you feedback... As I was saying today, you know, you look at a set of scripts, you're judging a set, and you're like, oh my goodness, there's an issue here with tense, for yes, example. Yeah, yeah. So it gives you that kind of broad brush, big picture, quick exposure, oh my God, these are the issues, we need to do this. And it doesn't just give you feedback, I would say, for children. It does give you some feedback for the children, but it gives you feedback for your curriculum. Yes. In that, actually, suppose you've done a comparative judgment session in September and another one maybe in January. If the children are making the same mistakes you can be like, hang on a minute, maybe it's not the kids, maybe it's something about, have we got enough time on some particular concepts? So I think it gives you feedback, but it is of a, of a slightly different sort, if you like, from the day-to-day feedback you're getting uh, when you're teaching tense. So I absolutely agree with you, it's not giving you, it, it is giving you specific feedback, it isn't giving you that fine brain drilled yes. down, um, precise diagnostic feedback yes. about... Yeah, the apostrophe exactly. like what is their issue is it the apostrophe of a mission is it apostrophe of possession what exactly is it is it when there's plumes ending in S that they've got yes. the issue it doesn't give you that level of precision what it does give you 
is it gives you an idea of how they're managing to integrate everything they've learned together into one piece. Yes. Um, how they're applying it. Yes. And that's why I say it's ideal to do twice a year alongside all that other stuff because you can do all that other stuff and then you can say, right, are they integrating it all? Are they putting it all together into a piece? And because you know you've got those two pieces coming up, it stops you getting too bogged down yes. in the smaller stuff. So for me, the ideal balance would be what are my smaller, precise, formative things that are going on lesson by lesson and we've got an end goal we're working towards yeah. which is our comparative judgment session uh, where we're going to be judging quality writing okay so for me that would be the, the best way of doing it for me twice a year I know a lot of schools do three times a year um, so you know two or three times a year but no more that would be my idea that is perfect Daisy thanks so much for making time for us see you Craig So there was a very quick word with Daisy before she hopped on a taxi to Warrington. So thanks, Daisy, so much for talking to me there. And fingers crossed we can get her back on the podcast because she's absolutely fascinating person to talk to. So just back to me and John for a few more minutes. We're each going to just share a, a takeaway, something that we're, we're, that's going to change our practice as a result of being on the course. So I'm, I'm going to hand over to you first, John. What, what's your kind of big takeaway? Yeah, I mean, undoubtedly, I'm going to be looking into um, hopping on the, the, the free version the in-house version to, to, to begin with before we start looking at uh, comparing across the or, or looking at the national picture and I really really want to try this idea of getting your whole class to, to do a task in silence and exam conditions and then getting them onto PDFs and actually comparing each other's as a group I just think the, the phrase Daisy used I might have mentioned it before was it's a great blend uh, with whole class feedback and I just think um, yeah, the, the possibilities there are really exciting. So what would you what would you do? You'd, you'd set the task, you'd get it as PDFs, you'd scan. Daisy talks about the fact that you bundle them all together, pop them in the photocopier. Uh, modern day photocopiers create a single PDF of it. You upload it to the upload it to the no more marking system. And then what would you do? Would you are you picturing just you yourself going through this, or would you bring the other members of the faculty involved? Well, how are you going to get the best out of this? All of this, all of that sounds great. I'm, I'm picturing the, the pupils themselves in the computer suite. And that's the most... What, what age are we talking? The what, most what, immediate, what? exciting kind of uh, t- takeaway that, that I'm, I'm, I'm moving away from this from. Like year um, 11s or year 6 formers or... Yeah, um, just probably thinking off the top of my head. Um, it's, it's my year 10 class, so it's, yeah. Yeah, it's my year 10 class, my English English class, and I'm looking at English language, uh, probably component two, which for us is uh, transactional non-fiction. Uh, it's an hour-long task, maybe shave shave 15 minutes off that, give them 45 minutes uh, in silence. And uh, yeah, I'd start with a, t- a typical sort of non-fiction task, very similar to perhaps what um, the, the, the one that we looked at. Um, in fact, in fact, I'm pretty sure. Did Daisy not say that we could um, that we could use that that we could could use that in the faculty? So the, the specific task was this one that we talked talked about before about the music festival. So I might get my class to do the same task. Ah, that's a good idea. And then what was once you've got it once you've got it ranked in order and the kids have kids have done it and so on. What 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 are you actually doing with that? Are you like reproducing what this other teacher's done and focusing on the top? the top performing one or are you picking out specific things from, from other scripts I'd really like them and I think they would get a sense of how the best writing is not always the piece of writing 
that addresses all seven of the rhetorical devices that are being taught in class over over the period. That's now. I guess my question there is. Yeah, I know what you're going to say, and well, I'm, I'm, trying, I'm thinking this is good. this is this is definitely a, a, cha- a professional challenge now. Because if, if you're going if you're going to ask me, well, okay, you you you, you want to establish that the, the the piece with the best natural flair is the winner. Yes. How do you teach that? Yeah. Inverted commas. Well, natural flair. Two things really. There's. I, I'll give you what I, because I think that's a difficult question, so I'll give you a bit of time to get the perfect answer for that. But the other thing I was going to ask is, is that definitely how they're going to be marked in the exam? So, are, like, are examiners not going off the rubric, if that makes sense? Do it, when examiners mark things, are they not going through, have I got this here, tick, 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 and then I'm assigning a level from it? Because I guess what we don't want to do is get people, get pupils in the mindset that they know what a good piece of writing feels like like but actually whenever they come to do that in an exam it's not getting them the score but I guess is that something that's been answered by the validity thing the fact that these things do actually correlate pretty pretty highly so is, is that not actually a big concern I, I think so and I think the mark scheme is generous enough certainly at the top band to allow inter- teachers to interpret yes so, all right, well, let's do the big one then. So what, how are you going to teach them to write with flair? So they, they've got this script that, that's come out and it's been unanimously decided amongst your classes that this is a really strong script, really good piece of writing. How do we teach them to do that? You see, it's sort of... It's inbuilt within the actual system because the way you, the way you do that is by exposing them to as many brilliant or excellent pieces of writing as possible and of course by doing this exercise they are being exposed in a very quick and user-friendly manner to a vast array of, of, of script but within that obviously some very very good ones and would you be pushing them to deconstruct why it's good would that be a useful thing or is it enough just to have a feeling that this is better than this no I mean you've got to you've got to trust the professional to be able to make the judgment fairly quickly in 20 seconds or however long it, it, it takes but obviously you have to allow the student the time to deconstruct what it is that might have given the teacher that initial yes. sense that one was better than the other and that you envisage that being quite a useful kind of class discussion afterwards like here's the one that we all thought was best now why why was this best there, very much so there's, there's so many things you could do there I'm just I'm imagining screen, you know, a screenshot of of two pieces, the teacher or me, I decided that was better than the other one. Why did I decide that? And I guess it's even more powerful if they've decided it as well, right? So yeah. If, if so if your validity score is yeah. high, and if so, if the one you think's best is also the one the pupils think's best, that's that's interesting. That's quite powerful, right? They've got a kind of a natural buy-in to that, I guess. Very much so. I'm just thinking there would would. Um, Especially if you're the student who's sitting there and it makes your work, but uh, it doesn't have to be that way. No, of, it of course, no, of, of course, no. And there's issues with that, but again, that that comes round to the culture of the class and you just making sure that this is known as a learning experience and all that kind of thing. So I think, yeah, I yeah, think that's yeah, hurdles. Uh, anonymous, can, anonymous. Um, no, that's great. Well, that's a great takeaway, John. That's uh, yeah, that, that could be big. I bet you're excited about trying that one out. Yeah, Monday, Monday morning. <laughs> there we Pencil go. It in. There we go. Uh, well, I'll just do a couple of uh, 
uh, thoughts I had about maths and John if you want to ask me any questions at any point feel free because the obvious danger with this is you think oh that's all well and good for these I mean I don't use the phrase airy fairy subjects no, but no. The, <laughs> these ones where extended pieces are right and that are a bit more subjective whereas maths you're either right or wrong and all that kind of thing but there was a couple of things I was thinking the first was this would have been a godsend back in the days of coursework so for teachers who've never um, marked maths coursework it was an absolute nightmare because you essentially from what I remember you had a, a, a mark a scoring grid between one and eight in three different categories so it was like communication mathematical accuracy and all this kind of thing and you had to assign a score in each of these categories which gave you a total out of 24 I could have got the numbers wrong but it was something like that but the problem was and this is true of any rubric I guess and John will know more about this than me you could see elements of, say, a level five in their answer, but you could also see elements of a level three in their answer. And they hadn't quite got the uh, level five stuff, but they'd done most of the level three stuff. You couldn't see any of the level four stuff in there. So what the flipping at grade you give them? And I ended up just kind of taking a, a stab in the dark or I'd give them a four. And it was like it was a completely flawed system. Um, so for coursework, this would have been perfect. And I assume that, that it would work in the exact same way it would work for English. But what about... Now we've moved away from coursework, has it got any practical kind of applications in maths? Well, even four or five mark questions, multi-step multi questions, sure you have to follow the mark scheme and some mark schemes are pretty clear what you get marks for. But I still think there's validity in doing this as an activity, saying which is a better answer. Because you can get two answers that both get, get four out of five, but one is clearly better set out, better presented, uh, clearer communication than others. And I guess the interesting thing is, for me, that a score, uh, a mark, uh, an answer that would have got four out of five on a bad day from an examiner might get a three out of five. So actually, it's worth students and teachers being aware, what are the strong four out of five answers? And by ranking different uh, approaches to questions, both teachers and students, I think that can be a really useful thing to do, even though we're a bit more rigid when it comes to uh, allocating marks. Um, final two things, though. Um, Daisy said that for, for some maths questions, it's really, really interesting. They've done some studies on this. So Daisy's favourite one was, and I think she mentioned this when I interviewed her um, in the previous podcast, what rules in maths do you know that are always true? And that's kind of a really open-ended question that allows kids to kind of show off their flair, shine in it and you could get a whole host of answers to that which would be impossible to mark and assign levels to and grades to or it would take hours and moderation and all that kind of thing but if I was presented with two different answers to that, to the question what rules in maths do you know that are always true, I could probably rank them fairly easily so therefore if I can rank them or the teachers can rank them, students can rank them and then we get all the benefits that the English teachers get of being able to say well you've all voted this as a really strong answer, why why is it strong? Well, why did you think this was a better answer than that? And so on. So I think for those open-ended questions, which could well, you could give to kids at the end of half term or the end of summer term in place of your traditional projects, I think that's a really interesting thing to experiment with. And I, I can see me definitely doing that. Does that... Sorry, great to interrupt. But no, does that, does that, I've been reading a lot lately about mastery and this idea oh, yes. of that. Is that the sort of question that would be a starting point for that sort of approach? I'd... Yeah, it's interesting. I mean... Ma when I hear mastery alarm bells go off do they? people okay. will be kicking off straight they'll hear right, mastery okay. they'll, they'll be coming in so I'll give you your Twitter <laughs> handle so they can have, have a go at you for this um Mastery is an interesting one. Whether the, and I'll be doing a podcast very soon with Helen Drury, the author of uh, Mastery for Secondary Maths, where we can dig into this a bit more. And um, 
I don't know what, what the time with this with mastery is. Possibly, I think what where it could come into play, mate, is at the end of a particular unit. So say you've done fractions, and the whole point of mastery is we're going deep. We're not going right, quick yeah, through yeah. fractions. We are going deep. So at the end, of, and I'm just thinking top of my head here. I've taught you fractions for two weeks. We've done a ton of fractions. We've interleaved it with algebra, decimals, negatives. We've had a great time. How am I going to assess you at the end of that? Well, sure, I can give you a 10-question test or a past exam paper or something like that. Or I could give you something a bit more open-ended. What do you know about fractions? And there, we could then have something that's less structured that we can then use comparative judgment for. Because I think that's the point. The more less structured a task is, the more it seems to lend itself to comparative judgment. So if we're taking off all the boundaries to kids and saying, just tell me what you know, however you want yeah. to, then we can start to really tap into this. But the point Daisy made, um, that hopefully you could hear on this podcast, was you won't use this for everything. So at some point, I need to pinpoint exactly where the strengths and weaknesses are for my students in fractions or whatever it is so I can hone in and give them specific feedback specific intervention and so on so I wouldn't use comparative judgment for that but if I want to get an overall picture of what they know and really let kids shine then I think comparative judgment at the end of a topic could be really 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 useful and to mark any kind of maths investigation task or something like that I think it's got big big potential so it's a good question that John and the, the the final thing I was just going to say is another a way I see this could be used is to get, and I don't know if this is true for English, mate, but to compare how difficult you think questions are, because I think that's often an interesting thing. Where if I get two questions of two completely different topics, okay, yeah, it's quite interesting to know which do I think is the more difficult of those questions, and it's a very subjective thing. Well, as soon as I hear subjective, I think now comparative judgment. So if I gave that to a hundred different maths teachers and said which which of these two fra- which of these two questions is the more difficult. I think then we could start to be able to rank question difficulty quite easily. And as soon as you can start ranking question difficulty, that you can then start to put together more simple tests, medium tests, or more challenging tests. So to use at different points when kids are learning, uh, I've learned different things. So I don't know how useful that will be, and I don't know if you can see any implications for that. You're running the program. You're running through the program with with. Uh, teachers and the questions in the same way that you would do the pupils and their answers. Yeah, just off the top of my head. And I don't know what how much use that would be, but I think it would certainly be useful um, to, to get a sense of what teachers can see. Well, I get here's a use straight away. You know, <laughs> this is literally off the top of my head. This could be the worst thing I've ever said. But um, often it's the case that I'll think a question's a difficult one. And then whenever we get the marks back from the kids, it's turned out that actually they found a different question. Uh, they've, they've performed worse on a different question. And often whenever I'm trying to prepare kids for exams or I'm just doing teaching, I'll focus on what I consider to be the most difficult skill and question. I'll put more time into that. Whereas whenever I get the results back, it'll turn out that I should have put my emphasis on something else. So I'm wondering whether that's more of a widespread uh, issue. So I wonder if we did this for English questions or something, and you gave this to a load of English teachers, and what do you reckon is the most difficult question here? Put them in rank order for perhaps the past paper or something like that. And then when you get your scores back from the kids, you find out actually they performed worse on this question. I wonder whether that will then have implications for where you emphasize your teaching in the That's future, great, does, does that make sense? That's a great idea. So your starting point is: here's a paper. You tell me now. I'll I'll have a look at the I'll have a look at the results. Yeah. And I'll I'll 
I'll build my planning around whatever you're telling me in terms of what's, what's the so. most difficult. And I think there's potential to do that with the kids as well because the kids often over or underestimate how good they are at particular topics and it's only in the face of cold hard data that they're like, oh actually yeah, I did do worse on that. But I wonder, could we, if we ran that data through first to see kids, what do you think is the easiest, what do you think is the most difficult question and then compare it with what they actually did found. I just think that would be interesting in, in terms of kids' metacognition and all that reflecting on their strengths and weaknesses. Perhaps there's something in that. I don't know. As I say, I've had a latte. Ideas are just <laughs> flowing from here, but possibly there's something in that. I don't know. Should have another one. <laughs> <laughs> Maybe I will. Right, well, um, hopefully you found that useful. As I say, a bit of a bit of a something a bit different from the usual conference takeaways. Definitely not math specific there, but certainly I think there's something in it for, for mathematicians, for math teachers, and plenty in it for, for non-math teachers. I'll put links to the No More Marking blog and also the No More Marking website where you can sign up and as I say, Daisy says you can do it completely free internally within your school, within a group of schools, and you only need to start paying and subscribing whenever you want to get this national picture to start getting an idea of levels. But I'd certainly recommend doing the activity that we did in the training session just to get a sense of how this comparative judgment works. But yeah, I'll, I guess I'll leave the, the final word with you, John. I, I, I found this a fascinating day. Um, have, have you enjoyed it? Yeah, and it's just it's just so lovely, isn't it, when you, you're presented with something like this. You go in there with not not closed mindset, but you, you have a, a, an idea of how you think it will probably work. And it, it centred around that rank order thing, didn't it? And she, she sort of debunked that myth pretty much straight away. And here we are a couple of hours later still coming up with potential ways that we could use it so yeah really really satisfying superb well massive thank you firstly to Meals Cop uh, in Southport for, for hosting the event huge thank you for, to Daisy for doing this on a tour of the Northwest. Um, a big thank you to you Mr Selick for, for joining me um, on this podcast it's been great having Thanks, you mate. here it's been a pleasure thank you and a huge thank you to the loyal listeners for keeping listening um, I will be back with uh, some fresh guests and some fresh episodes we've got dead excited about the ones coming up in the near future but you take care of yourselves and bye for now.